by the Clifton Strengths Assessment. They developed this assessment that through uh, 177 different pairing questions, they identify these clusters of talent. And there are 34 different talent themes. Well, I'm not a big numbers person, but one of the numbers I do love is the chances of you having the same top five in the same order as one in 33 million. So when we're thinking about individuals, helping them discover what makes them really unique and how they think, feel and behave so differently to somebody else. And what I love in a team aspect as well is how can we harness that uniqueness? How can we look at where are we similar? Where are we different? How might we leverage each other even more to meet great outcomes? So again, being a polling company, Gallup have an awful lot of research on this. Mm. Teams that have the opportunity to use their strengths are over 8.9% more profitable, over 12.5% more productive, people are happier, more engaged. So it's really identifying how we think, feel and behave and then how we can invest in it to turn it into a strength to you know, achieve those great outcomes at an individual level, a team level, an organisational level. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is a leader in the area of talent development and employee engagement, founder of the Strengths Partners and author of the recently released book, Career Unstuck. She is an International Coaching Federation professional certified coach and one of Australia's most experienced Gallup accredited strength coaches. As a seasoned professional who has navigated the corporate world with giants like Canon and Verizon, she has dedicated the past decade to helping individuals, teams, and organizations discover and leverage their strengths. I'm pleased to bring into the studio the coach's coach, a fun-loving, passionate herb connoisseur, and who has a passion for helping others maximize their potential, Charlotte Blair. Charlotte, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Craig. Ah, so listening to that accent doesn't sound like you may have originally come from Australia. So where did you grow up and what was the big dream for you as you played in the streets with your friends? I grew up in um, rural Surrey in England. I was sort of born at home. I was kind of love thinking about that. I wasn't born in a hospital. I was born at home and we lived in this little cottage in the country and I've always lived in the cottage in the country so it's funny when you say playing in the streets I didn't play in the streets I've played in the uh, paddocks and the fields um, with probably my siblings so I grew up as part of a, a, a big family living quite remotely I remember 
when I was a little, um, sort of more around the age of sort of seven and eight, we lived in this really big um, country property. I was very fortunate and my parents did bed and breakfast. So um, we didn't really have neighbors there either. We were a couple of miles away from anybody else. Um, so I, I loved having the opportunity to be out um, playing. I think if I think back to my big dream in terms of the big dream of what did I want to be when I grew up, um, I wanted to be a PE teacher. Uh, or a policewoman, and uh, neither of, neither of those eventuated. Um, but if I think about the big dream, it was also to have a you know a, a property, a, a big property out in the country, and that dream absolutely uh, eventuated. So I've always been very much a country girl. Wanted to be surrounded by horses and animals, and that has remained a constant throughout my life. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful hours. Very similar when I grew up, uh, you know, as you say, you know, the nearest people are a mile or two away and you get to roam the paddocks and just kind of have fun without uh, being in too much danger, I think. Yeah. Good. yeah, no, it was great. Great childhood. Very fortunate. I had a, a lovely a lovely upbringing and a fun childhood. Good. So were you more of a leader or follower when you were in your kind of formative years through high school? Uh, I was either a leader or a, a, a trend bucker. <laughs> so if there was something that everybody else was doing, I was not a follower. I would go, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm sort of doing the opposite type of thing. And then I might uh, cotton on or follow it a couple of years later. Um, if I think about leading, I led the netball team. I led the hockey team. Um I've always been a bit of a serial committee member as well. So I remember joining committees and, you know, debating teams. And, you know, as I kind of left school, I didn't go to university, but as I left school and got into more sort of social type enterprises or clubs or riding clubs, I, I always found myself putting my hand up for um, committee member positions or chairperson positions or president positions. So, uh, in particularly in the absence of somebody else. So I think that's my kind of, I know you're familiar with the Clifton Strengths um, language, Greg, but that would be my kind of command of happy to lead in the absence of somebody else. So I would find it frustrating if something wasn't moving forward. Yeah. I would always step in and, and lead. I didn't have to be the leader, but in the absence of somebody else, I'd be like, I'll, I'll do it. Nobody else can do it. Come on, let's get going. Um, so I would, I would do that. Yeah, and you talk about not going to university there. So what was kind of the first career or job that you had uh, coming out of high school? Uh, I was a groom. I worked in a big stable yard, um, initially down in Somerset uh, and a venting yard. And then I moved back up to Surrey and worked in a, controversial, but worked in a big hunting yard. Um, I worked for this lovely old Polish count who lived in London and had a country property and I would look after his horses for him during the week, live on property, which was you know lovely. So yeah, initially I worked with horses, and I also have multiple jobs: waitressing, working in pubs. I would I would juggle lots of different jobs, um, really just to pay my expensive habit that was my own horses. Yeah, and then I um, started as a temp, um, a temporary worker for Canon in their work control team where I would allocate the engineers out to fix the photocopiers, which is funny enough where I met my husband. 
many years ago, uh, and we're we're still together, which is always a lovely story. And then I progressed my career through um, through Canon for, for for seven years. So yeah, I had a, a mixture of jobs. Horses was absolutely my passion, but didn't earn the money. And my big dream was to earn a, you know, have a big house. And I wasn't going to have a big house whilst working with horses. So realized I had to get out and get into the corporate world. And that's how I did. Ne- never thought I would head off down the sales path, but that's the path that I, I did head down. Uh, I'm very comfortable on my own. I'm not like a sort of intellection that needs to, you know, have time to think. But I, I like nature and I like being out. Like, you know, I'm, I do my best thinking. I think when I'm out walking the dogs, or um, I don't, I don't ride anymore because I had a bit ac- big accident. But you know, when I was out riding, that's when I would do my best thinking. So I like the country, but I don't have to have my own space. But I like to, I love people, I love being around people, but not all the time. Like I like to choose that. I often say um, where I live, and I've always lived fairly remotely, even now coming to you from sort of rural, rural Victoria and our neighbours are not that close. And I kind of like to choose that. Um, I wouldn't want neighbours really close. I want to choose when I kind of talk to people. So yeah, the kind of bars and restaurants and the energy. Sometimes I walk into a, a restaurant now and I go, Oh, you know, I, I kind of miss these days of interacting with customers and meeting people. And even the restaurant my son used to work at, they were calling for extra staff over a period of time. And I was very tempted to go back in and, hey, I'll I'll help out because, yeah, that, that does give me energy. I'm not sure being on my own gives me energy, but that's my that's my thinking time. And I just enjoy absorbing the nature. Mm. So you, you found yourself in... Canon, and obviously you talked about you know working in sales to begin with. What what do you think that role taught you that has helped you through the rest of your career? Oh, uh, well, I'd say fundamentally asking questions. I often think about you know sort of sales and coaching. The similar aspects to them is they're both about asking questions. Sales, it's about being able to provide a solution though. You're asking questions in order to find out what the problem is and do I have a solution that might um, fit that. Coaching's obviously different, that we're not trying to solve somebody else's problems. We're asking them questions to help them solve their own um, questions, uh, problems. So um, I think asking questions, it's it's really interesting. And I noticed on Facebook this morning, the one of the biggest influences in terms of my career, um, Peter Spittery, he turned 82 um, yesterday. It was his birthday. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, he was so instrumental in my career at this very gobby, mouthy, you know, 21-year-old, 22-year-old. He used to work in lots of restaurants. And he sort of said to me, Charlotte, you've got, you got the gift of the gab, you know, and you, you've got this passion for earning money. Have you considered 
a role in sales. And he was the one that gave him that first opportunity. And albeit it was selling paper and toner initially, but everybody has to start somewhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was a he was a sort of big influence. But his um, his nickname was Genghis because he, you know, he'd go, gosh, you're a little bit intimidating and upfront sometimes. And that will be that raw command. Um, you know, and sometimes I probably still can be, not intentionally. So I absolutely think um, I learned a lot through those formative years of the understanding the impact that you can have on other people, you know, what you say, how you say it, how you interact. And for me to be able to sort of, you know, balance my strengths and pepper in some positivity and woo, you know, might might help with that. So absolutely learned the impact that you can have on people and, and that asking questions can be incredibly powerful. Mm. I think for those who are listening, I think this is a good time because a few words have popped up and we've kind of hinted a little around uh, Gallup Clifton strengths here. Do, do you just want to give a bit of an overview from your perspective what Gallup Clifton strengths is for listeners who haven't heard it before um, and what it it seeks out to achieve with people and organizations? Sure. So Gallup are a big you know, polling company and Don Clifton's one of the forefathers of positive psychology. A number of years ago, he was lecturing at Nebraska University and looked in the library and went, wow, look at all these books of what's wrong with people. What would happen if we focused on what's right with people? And through his research, uh, they went out and found that they were sort of these clusters of talent and talent is how somebody naturally thinks, feels, and behaves. It's an element of nature, nurture. Sometimes we're just born like it. You know, I was born a woo, I think. Always been socially courageous. And some develop over time. So by the Clifton Strengths Assessment, they developed this assessment that through uh, 177 different pairing questions, they identify these clusters of talent. And there are 34 different talent themes. Well, I'm not a big numbers person, but one of the numbers I do love is the chances of you having the same top five in the same order as one in 33 million. So when we're thinking about individuals, helping them discover what makes them really unique and how they think, feel and behave so differently to somebody else. And what I love in a team aspect as well is how can we harness that uniqueness? How can we look at where are we similar? Where are we different? How might we leverage each other even more to meet great outcomes. So again, being a polling company, Gallup have an awful lot of research on this. And mm. teams that have the opportunity to use their strengths are over 8.9% more profitable, over 12.5% more productive. People are happier, more engaged. So it's really identifying how we think, feel, and behave, and then how we can invest in it to turn it into a strength to you know achieve those great outcomes at an individual level, a team level, an organizational level. It's it's interesting, you know, a lot of companies will uh, have tended to use sort of profiling tools and they're all different. They all measure different things. So it's very difficult to compare. But I think sometimes you'll quite often see where they use, say, a tool that is quadrants because it's so easy for people to pick that up quickly. But however, it's not very individualized. And, you know, there are eight point something billion people on this planet and we're all separated i think our dna is separated by less than one percent but we're all very very unique and completely different human beings so i love that fact that gallup strengths you know that top five same chance a top five same order one in 33 million 
but it does take a little bit longer for people to unpack and understand strengths than maybe what it would say for a disc profiling where you can just go, okay, I'm a D, I'm et cetera. And then you can go, all right, well, here are the, the things so I can easily identify someone else and, and maybe generalize what, how they may think, feel or behave in a way. So in that, how do you make it easy for people to be able to understand their strengths? You know, you talked about 34 strengths. How do we make it easy for people to understand their strengths and how they can use them? Yeah, I find myself increasingly using cooking metaphors. Uh, I wasn't good enough at chemistry at school to remember the periodic table. Um, so I like using cooking metaphors. In fact, I've got you know, one of my favorite chefs here, Jamie Oliver. I think about your top five like being like this book. So I'm holding up, you know, Jamie Five's five ingredients. He takes five ingredients and goes, let's create, you know, quick and simple, easy food. So how do we get used to using those five ingredients? I think about a cake. A cake has, you know, equal parts, butter, sugar, plain vanilla sponge cake, you know, equal parts, butter, sugar, flour, um, then eggs, and then we might add some vanilla essence. It's the combination of those five ingredients that make up the cake. We don't eat just the butter on its own. We don't just eat the flour on its own. So helping people understand the power of their, if you're going to start with just the top five, which I often think is, you know, it's just 20% of who we are. But yeah, let's hero those five ingredients first, get really comfortable using those. But what happens if I start adding in other ingredients into my, you know, cake that is made up of, you know, the six, seven, eight, nine, ten that might be out of those 34 themes. It's the dominant talents. It's the things that we do really well that we naturally pull upon. Like for me, it's my top 12. You know, I see that you've got futuristic um, Craig at, you know, number two. I've got futuristic. And number 12, it's my kind of last of my dominant talents. I'm always thinking about where I'm going, the future. Um, but I've got focus at number 13. Am I focused every day? No, I'm not. Am I focused when I need to be? Yes, I am. So that's what I would call a supporting talent thing. It's like the can opener in the kitchen drawer. I know where it is. I know how to find it. I know what it does. I go grab it when I need to. So I think I sort of help people think about the dynamics, the interplay of those sort of dominant talents, whether it be one to five, whether it be one to seven, whether it be one to 10. And when you can help people think back at past successes, and retell those stories and look at where those talents and strengths came into play, then people can find that connection, you know, really easily. And they think about their own dishes that they love cooking or eating. <laughs> they can see the interplay. If I'm making a curry, being a, a Brit, you know, we love our we love our curries. You know, if I put too much chili in my curry, I think maybe command and it's a bit too spicy, then I might have to balance that out a little bit. You know, the ingredient may be called for a teaspoon and I actually put in a tablespoon and there was just that bit too much. Yeah. I might need to balance it out with the yogurt or coconut milk, you know, and that might be my woo or positivity. So we start to think about the dynamics and the blends and then somebody else joins me in the kitchen with their talents and strengths in cooking. Well, something different can be created altogether. When we're thinking about that at a team level going, wow, you know, you 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 just think, feel, and behave differently to me, and instead of seeing that as an issue, I see that as an advantage. Because um, you know, like you've got a number of different the themes, Craig, that I don't have. So you would be an amazing partner for me because you can just sort of see patterns that I can't necessarily see with your strategic and your number one a learner is my number thirty four. So I don't I don't love learning. I can absolutely learn, but I don't love learning. So. 
there's a number of ways to sort of help people, but I do believe everybody needs a coach and having a coach to help you unpack your full report. Um, I mean, every, every day that I do a debrief, people go, oh my gosh, I'm reading this report so differently. I can really see how these show up. And then it's that case of how could you use it 1% more than you already are? What would that look like if we just took little tiny tweaks to invest in it? So you talk about Learner being your number 34. And so really curious, at what point when you're at Canon, because you had a, a couple of different roles there, where you started to shift more into learning and development type roles and, and nurturing and coaching. Um, so a strength that is out of 34, it's the bottom strength, um, which has components of not only you learning, but also, I suppose, sharing learnings with other people. So what was kind of that catalyst to, to kind of shift more into that mode of, I'm here to help people grow and evolve? Yeah, well, I'm high significance. And, you know, for, for your listeners, significance is about wanting to have an impact. So I think I've always wanted to have an impact, but I wasn't entirely sure what that impact was. Selling photocopiers, you know, yes, you're sort of having an impact. Even when I was working for Verizon, I spent 12 years as a global account director for Verizon. Yes, I would have an impact, but it actually wasn't until I did the Covey course, the Stephen Covey Seven Habits, and you think about your mission and purpose in life. Did I really realize that significance was an untapped power for me of, yes, I really wanted to make a difference. But I think it's always been there, even if I think about, you know, being a PE teacher or being a, a, a you know, policewoman, that wanting to make a difference, have an impact. My positivity wants to bring some fun and humor into whatever I'm doing as well. So... I want to make the workplace an enjoyable, fun place to go. It's the reason why I wrote the book, because I talk to so many people that don't love their work. So I think that training and development piece is about how can we help people reach their full potential. I'm a maximizer as well, so maximizers love good to great. So if we're already seeing a bit of talent somewhere or possibility, how can we nurture that? So as I say, you know, learners 34, inputs 33, doesn't mean to say I can't learn um, or I can't impart. I actually do it through other talent themes. Um, Clifton Strengths, I always say it's not what we do, it's how we do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, like for me, when I look at other strengths, you know, the way I like to explain it is around, you know, the ones that are more towards the top, those dominant themes are ones that really energize you because you use all 34 themes at some point, you know, and some more than others. Like I have context at 33 and futuristic at number two, which are somewhat, you know, seeing the present in a way or understanding the present, but one's based on what's possible with the future and how do we bring that in? Whereas the other one's based on history. Now, I know context is important and I use it like quite often, but it doesn't energize me. I'm not interested in sitting down and watching a, you know, a documentary on the history and things like that. Like I'm fascinated by going to places like Italy and seeing history um, from an architecture point of view. But yeah, I, I'm not energized about the context, whereas the future does energize me a lot. Um, so I like to kind of see it in that way. And as you said, like your learner's number 34, but you use it, you can apply it, but on its own, in its, in its sense, it doesn't energize you that well, but you're able to use your other strengths to... Um, Un, or, or I suppose in, uh, not embody, but um, to be able to bring that to life, what you need from that that strength that doesn't energize you much, what you need to bring, you use other strengths. So how do we do that? 
but how do we bring other strengths? How do we emulate other strengths? How can we use, say, our more dominant strengths to emulate things that we may not, that may not energize us as much? Yeah, uh, well, I, I think there's a number of things to potentially sort of unpack there. I think it depends on our role and what we need to do. So um, if I think about, you know, as a as a, um, a business owner, I need to do my accounts. I'm not particularly high analytical. I don't I don't love doing the numbers, but I have to lean upon my responsibility to be able to kind of do that. But if I, there is something else that I go, gosh, I'm really not that great in that area, I would be much better partnering with somebody else that does that well because it's what energizes and motivates them. So I think there's a couple of things here of um, sometimes people go, yes, but I need to focus on my weakness. I need to focus on what's at the bottom. And what's at the bottom of the report, as we've sort of unpacked a little bit, it's not necessarily a weakness it, unless it gets in the way of success. So does my learner input being low, getting in the way of success. No, it's not because I'm using something else to achieve the outcome. No, I didn't go to university. I left school as quickly as I possibly could. And that's a little bit of the activator of I, I learn best through doing and with other people. Like I hate online courses. I, I need to be in company of other people. But yet intellections low down for me. No, that doesn't motivate or energize me. But do I need to stop and think about things? Sometimes if I'm rushing off too fast with my activator, so therefore I've got to kind of stop myself, check myself and go, mm, just pause. Maybe I should reach out to Craig and find out what Craig thinks to this because he's a pretty good thinker. Um, so I think it's either trying intentionally to use uh, a dominant talent theme and seeing what happens, seeing what the result is, or intentionally reaching out to somebody else to partner or you know, a system like my spelling's terrible, being dyslexic. So I might use something like Grammarly to help me kind of you know navigate around that. I think the key here that's popping up for me as we're talking is this word intentionality. Yeah. I think often people discover their strengths and go, yeah, yeah, this is me. Oh, now what? Well, there's an intentionality about using it. I often joke and say, I'm not, I'm not gonna lose my 10 kilos of weight that I'm probably extra carrying just by thinking about it. I've actually got to either put less food in my mouth or go and do more activity. Roger Federer didn't turn out to be an amazing tennis player for so many years by just rocking up to court. He was intentional about practicing. Yeah. So we have to be intentional about utilizing our talents and strengths and you know, reflecting at the end of the each day, did that help me? Did that hinder me? Did I put a teaspoon or a tablespoon in? What could I use to balance that out? Who else could I use? So. I think the more that we can be playing to our strengths, the more energized we are, and the more in a team we can enable others to play to their strengths, the better outcomes that we're going to get if we partner together. Uh, I feel very fortunate because I'm one of the the few um, in the lower percentage, I suppose, in a way that have always loved their work, always been passionate, always loved it, always had things that I wanted to do. So I've never been in a situation where I'm, you know, don't like work, I'm disengaged or anything like that, never been. So I've been very fortunate. So my question then is, you know, when we look at the statistics and, and they're above 80% of people that are partly or, you know, fully disengaged from their work, what could we do better at an earlier age so that people actually find jobs they want to do and find their purpose a lot quicker than what we see at the moment 
because we can't blame the companies. We can't blame all the leaders for everything in a way, which happens sometimes for employee engagement. So what can we do differently? I think there's a couple of things, again, that are, are, are popping up for me there. I think the one that I kind of want to go to, I listened to a podcast not so long ago with Seth Godin about sunk costs. I think there's a lot of people that maybe head down a certain path. Um, you know, my 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 children at the moment, just that sort of, you know, one's just finished university, the other one's at that age where, the, you know, whether he's going to go to university or not. I think there's a lot of people that maybe go, oh, I, I studied to be an accountant. That's what my either parents wanted me to do. And I went to be an accountant, but I don't, I don't, I've got into it and I don't love it. But oh my gosh, I've spent all this time training to be an accountant. And Seth Godin talks about sunk costs, you know, sunk costs. They were a gift of yesterday. Let's think about the gift for tomorrow. You know, whatever you're looking at wanting to do or change to do or find out what gives you energy, that's the gift for tomorrow. We've got to thank the gift from yesterday. So I think there's number one, a lot of people go, oh, you know, it's just, I, I can't change. I spent so long training to do this or, you know, what will my parents think? I think there's another thing out there of um, some people go, well, you know, it's, I've just got to suck it up. Um, you know, it's, it's only nine to five. Uh, I've just got to suck it up. But that's a shame if we've just got to think we would have suck it, suck it up. And I think there's a lot to do with mindsets, now, whether that be a money mindset or, well, I have to do this job in order to pay my mortgage or pay the kids' school fees or whatever that might be. And um, again, when I was researching the book, Jackie Clark's book, um, Stop Worrying About Money, was quite insightful for me and really useful research in terms of analyzing your, I think she refers to it as, you know, open your front door costs you know, what does it cost to open up your front door? And if you were to analyze those, what would it look like? I think there's something in here about kind of testing the water as well. There are plenty of other things that you could be doing, but your own limiting beliefs, whether it be limiting beliefs or imposter syndrome, might stop you from testing the water and going, well, I don't, I don't love this at the moment. What if I was to sort of test the water and see what else that could look like? I was having a lovely coaching conversation with somebody yesterday that found themselves in marketing, but you know, I'm not sure if marketing's still right for me, but this is the area that I love doing. And so they're going to go off and sort of test test the water in some other areas. They're never going to lose those skills that they acquired in marketing. But again, sometimes we we, we get stuck there. So as an activator, I, I want to be able to lead and inspire others to test and learn, to dip the toe in and just kind of see what else is possible. Because there are so many different things that you you can do but I think people's mindsets keep them a little bit stuck where they are. Yeah. Talked about, yeah, everyone needs a coach. And, you know, I feel that's really important. It may not be your entire life, but at different points in your life, I think it's really important to have someone around being a coach. And you talked about coaching being around questioning for people to find the solution themselves. I come from a world of sport. So uh, initially, a, a lot of high performance sport, working with a lot of different people. And for us there, I always found that the role of a coach, there is a component where you are asking questions for them to find a solution, but you're, you're also in a, you also need to have that mode of when to try, uh, teach and train, um, when you need to be a mentor and at what phases that happens. 
So as a coach though, my, my question is, does a coach need to always sit in that coach mode of questioning or does a really good coach know how to shift gears, so to speak, or shift into those different spaces depending on what the person needs? Um, I think they can shift, but the key for me is understanding what that person wants. So, you know, maybe what I think they need might be different to what they might think they need. So I think in engagement, I would often ask, you know, what what do you want to walk away from this conversation having? How would you like us to partner together? You know, I, I coach and mentor a lot of other coaches, especially newly accredited Gallup coaches. They've just sort of done their five-day program and it's like, oh my gosh, now now what? So I absolutely put my mentor and my coaching hat on there, but I'm asking them, what do you really want to get from this conversation? And sometimes it might be, yeah, I kind of really want to know how do I do a first debrief or how do I run a team workshop? And I'm absolutely putting my mentoring hat on and imparting knowledge of, you know, this is what I've been doing for the last 10 years. This is what I found useful. But I think it comes back to, you know, what what does that person want and need? I do believe you know, as a ICF coach, International Coaching Federation, we have to meet, um, you know, certain uh, credentials and ethics. And it's believing that you, the person that you are coaching, your coachee is a whole and capable person, mm. that they have the answers within them, but it depends on, you know, what it is that they're trying to achieve. If you don't know what you don't know, then absolutely you might need a knowledge being imparted. So I, I think... I would put, call myself a coach, a mentor. I'm certainly not a counsellor. I think I can listen, but I, I, I can't deal with trauma or that would be you know, kind of passing that on to a, um, a professional. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, sometimes I'm a, I'm a consultant. If I'm going in and working with an organisation and I might you know, start with that CEO kind of coaching, but they might also say, well, what do you think we need? And then I might put my consulting hat on and say, well, Actually, I think we need to look at some leadership development, maybe giving people tools and skills to be able to, you know, understand the growth model, to be able to coach each other, to be able to learn how to give feedback using something like SBI as a model, situation behavior impact. Um, so yes, I think we, you know, we we cross over. But when when you're doing your ICF coaching, it's absolutely about asking questions and helping the other person, being holding up the mirror, um, being their thinking partner. But at the end, yes, it might well be, you know, would you like a little piece of a, a, advice? But we leave it until the end. And then they say, oh, yes. Um, I remember my coach did that when I was thinking about writing the book. She said, well, would you like a piece of advice of what helped me? And it was, yes, thank you. But I didn't willingly, or she didn't initially throw it out there. She waited until um, I had done my sort of processes and thinking about what options, yes, I could reach out to these people. And she was like, well, you know, this person was useful for me. Would you like me to connect you? Ah, oh, yes, thank you. But you kind of kept it to the end. Interesting. Uh, for you, when you look at kind of leadership and the way that kind of the the corporate world is, has shifted in a way, so we'll sit in corporate here. Um, we could talk about leading other types of things at the moment, but I'll, I'll stay in corporate for a bit here. Um, when we look about leadership, how has it changed in the last decade, if not the last five years, from your perspective in the way that we need to work with our employees, our maybe our other leaders around us, that is potentially different to what it has been you know, prior to that? Yeah, I, I think I notice a lot of leaders 
um, becoming better coaches themselves. So getting better at asking questions in order to be able to help empower and develop their people. I think I've noticed when you talk about the last five years, I've, I've noticed a sort of you know sh shift in curve. COVID, I think, threw in some curveballs. Um, that that time that we need to take to connect with somebody to really understand their motivations, what energizes them, for instance. I think I've noticed a little bit of a, a shift in some corporates that I work with where that manager or leader is trying to wear so many different hats and they're trying to do a functional role as well as lead a team, perhaps. And sometimes the leading component um, falls by the by the wayside a little bit. You know, they, there's a massive amount of pressure on them trying to juggle so many things. Whereas organisations that um, in, enable those leaders to really lead or enable those managers to manage are the ones that we sort of notice the bigger difference and the engagement. I mean, I think. We also know that not everybody is cut out to be a manager and a leader. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm noticing a trend where more people, more organizations are a little bit mi more mindful about who they do select. It's not necessarily just the high performer or the person that's been there a long time. Do they do they really have the right qualities and skills to, to be a leader? And then how can we help them discover and use their strengths and the impact that they can have on on being a being a leader, so I think there's a few trends, and I think COVID's thrown thrown a few sort of curveballs in there. I'm going to be really intrigued to see what happens with the whole working from home or working remotely or coming back into the office. You know, that's a, another amount of pressure on on leaders. Um, but again, I always love Gallup's research over some of that and trying to find that right hybrid mix, but. Yeah. I think the conversations that we're having, I'm, I'm noticing a really positive trend there of those more open coaching conversations. And naturally for me and the work that I do, that focus on strength is positive. Yeah, there's, um, there's some interesting developments, I suppose, when you talk about the way we work. You know, we've, you know, people talk, we've been talking about four day weeks for, I don't know, probably, probably a decade now, nearly. I, I think um, obviously got a lot more traction in the last sort of five, six years uh, with what happened in New Zealand with the, with the case study there with Prudent, uh, Prudential. Um, but seeing things like that where I just don't think we've really understood it. You know, a lot of those are based around productivity. Let's, let's productivity, but we're still, for me, there's some missing parts to this that I, I, are going to take a lot longer to understand. You know, the social aspects of it, when you start to condense everything to four days, everyone's hyper alert and hyper productive hyper efficient do we then lose some of the social components of work and the important and and the part that plays in people's uh social fabric and daily lives but also the other one if it's based around efficiency and productivity the high uh the high performers actually uh i'm going to differentiate here uh when i talk about high performing here in this instance it's those that uh uh, sorry, I'll change that to high productivity people. Those who are already really good at productivity and efficiency, are they actually going to lose out by going to a four-day week? Because they're not going to be able to fit what they did in 40 hours into 32 hours. Whereas someone who may not being as highly productive now is getting pressurized to complete 
what they did in 40 hours and 32 hours will be a lot easier to achieve in a way. Could yeah. potentially be. So are those high perform, a high productivity people missing out? Because high performance is different to high productivity in my mind. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see where that's going because I haven't seen great research on that yet. And so I would hate the high productivity people to kind of miss out a little bit because maybe they're not achieving great as great a gains as someone who may not have been as as productive previously. So things like that are interesting for, for me to consider. Yeah, I'm working with an organization at the moment and they are moving to a four-day week and coaching their entire leadership team. You know, some of those discussions, you know, some of them that are high achievers, you know, that they had that talent theme of achiever and responsibility and focus. They're like, I am just working toward the four-day week. You know, there's other people that are headless and going, oh my gosh, you know, I'm never going to be able to cram all this into four days. And she's like, well, you know, I'm working as if I'm working to a four-day week and she's feeling like she's incredibly productive. But, and, you know, this is what's going to be right for our organization. But the rest, not everybody necessarily thinks feels and is behaving that way too. So they will be an interesting kind of case study to see how they go with that. But that's also their role as leaders to say, if this is what we're going to do, you know, how can we all collectively work towards this? Not find that we're working still five days, but only being paid for four days. Um, but yeah, there there is a component component in there about the social. And I think back to when my children were probably as young as yours are now, I wasn't interested in things like career development. I was like, I just want to come in, do my job and get home to my to my children. Um, and that enabled me to actually be probably more productive. But did I miss out on some of the social aspects? Absolutely. You know, when I remember working in a in a uh, an all male team, and I was the only female salesperson, and they would be, you know, going to the, the 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 pub after work. I would I would not go to the pub after work because I would be going back to my children. Um, now, did I miss out on some dynamics and social aspects for that? Yes, yes, probably. Um, was I productive in my work? Yes, I think I was because I'd also have to be a lot more efficient in meetings of going right. Okay, no, I need to I need to go now. So. Yeah, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all, but it is going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, we, we saw it during COVID when everyone went, oh, we've got to shorten the number of meetings. Oh, sorry, shorten the length of our meetings. But what ended up happening is you focus on some core elements, but you maybe areas that were missed out were making sure everyone was included in the conversation, giving people space to be able to speak up, um, and creating that environment or just that space where people can connect. And, and so people had to be a lot more deliberate about that because you couldn't just bump into them in the hallway anymore um, or you couldn't just bump into the pub after work or whatever it may be. So I'm, I'm also curious to see where that goes because I feel like some meetings, yes, they have condensed them because maybe they went too long and I understand that. But there's also a point where you've got to make sure that you're very intentional a word that you used earlier intentional about looking at team cohesion and that social component that is required to to be able to be a high performing team versus just be a whole lot of high productive high achieving uh, high performing individuals who are great individual contributors like how do we build that cohesive connected collaborative environment when maybe we're working less hours or maybe we are working remotely um, you know, in, in different different workplaces. And I think the power of th 
tools like strengths is going to be really valuable in trying to help people connect that but it's going to have to be very intentional when we've got such a mindset on how do we make our companies more efficient more productive um etc as we move forward with technology coming into play so i'm curious from your perspective how we can really uh integrate things like strengths effectively but to consider the changing work environment and how we can bring those things together that are really important for what it takes to be high performing as a team and collective uh, over a long period of time. Yeah, I think that sort of comes back to the discussion with the team of what does a high performing team look like to them and what energizes and motivates them. You know, you're probably familiar with that sort of best of us activity. And I love that at a team setting when you can really unpack that. It's not just everybody reads it out and we move on, but we really unpack what it means. So you get the best of me when, dot, dot, dot. You get the worst of me when, dot, dot, dot. This is what I need from you. This is what you can count on me for. Even that kind of social connection at the beginning of meeting, that's not going to energize in some people. You know, if it's your woo, communication, empathy, you know, the connectedness, some of those themes that that's what's going to energize and motivate them. They want the chit chat and the, the the connecting, whereas others that just want to get on with their work or think about things don't. So it's kind of understanding the balance of, all right, well, what is it that we individually need? What is it that we individually bring? How can we find the right balance between that? And I, I remember having some amazing conversations with some people of somebody saying, oh, no, I really need the social buzz of somebody else sat next to me. And the person sat next to me is like, I do not. I, you know, Lockie, when you come over, I've got to put my headphones on and I can't focus. And all it took was a little jiggle around of the office and going, okay, well, let's have, you know, Lockie sat next to Sarah, this person over here. And all of a sudden they were a lot more productive, but had that awareness and understanding and would find other ways to be able to connect. It's the short, short, sharp connect or it's a, you know, connect outside of work. But I think asking the team and having a deeper conversation about you know, how do we communicate, how do we celebrate, how do we connect, um, and just sort of making sure that everybody does have the opportunity to to be able to share in a safe space. And I think that's why building the foundations of strengths initially and people getting to understand self and understanding others is is sort of quite critical. But again, there's, it's not a quick fix. It's not a, da -da, we've done our strengths, you know, we're all good now. Yeah. It's an ongoing conversation of what does high performing look like to us as a team and how can we collectively bring our unique talents and strengths to the situation, but also what do we need from each other? I think that's sometimes what's missing. We don't have those conversations of what do we need to be at our best. Mm. It's interesting, a lot of people talk about high-performing and high-performing teams, and a lot of the things they share and talk about are actually just a performing team. It's not a high-performing team. There's a very, to me, there's a very big difference between a performing team and a high-performing team. And, and it, I feel like the last decade or so, it's the, the airways have been kind of confused. And there's lots of people talking about, oh, you must do this, this. And I'm like, well, that's just a performing team. How do you go to that next level? And I think that's really important. And it's made me, you know, look at a couple of different things based on some of my experiences and what I'm seeing. You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, we must create harmony to create a high-performing team. And I'm like, okay, so what about diversity? Isn't harmony and diversity kind of opposite ends? So how do we actually create true harmony if we want real diversity in our teams and thought patterns? So it's, 
I find an interesting space where in a world where we talk a lot about harmony, we see very little of it. And when it comes to high performing teams, it, harmony to me is not always the key, it is very rarely a, a key element of a high performing team. So how do we approach this whole world of diverse thinking, but keep people united in a way and have some harmony, but not try to make harmony the focus of it. Because to me, that then takes away aspects of the diversity that we're really seeking. Yeah, I think what initially pops up for me there is the word harmony. When you, If you were to ask 10 different people what they mean by harmony, you're probably going to get 10 different answers. But I think about Ilona is, was in the same kind of group as I was, the expert author of community of writing the book. And she was writing a book on team harmony. And whilst I haven't read the book, I was listening to her on a podcast and she used this amazing analogy of like an orchestra. When an orchestra are playing of a number of different you know, roles, number of different instruments, um, ultimately they want to be playing in harmony so that it sounds like whatever is written on the... I'm not a musician, but whatever is written on the score, is it? The music sheet, you know, they they all understand their role. They know when they need to come in and that um, piece of music is delivered perfectly in harmony. It's not that the trombone or the flute or the violin is drowning out the somebody else. They all understand their different roles and are working in harmony. I think that's what I think about it on a high-performing team. Are they working in harmony? But I think other people maybe think about, you know, are we being very nice to each other? Are we having harmonious conversations? And and actually, it's uh, unpacking the other word of maybe not quite the opposite to harmony. But you know, I think conflict. When people say, "Oh, there's conflict," well, sometimes we need conflict, as in different ideas. Um, I think if you pull down the word conflict, it's about kind of d- different thought processes and ideas. They're, they're not all bad. Not all conflict is bad. Um, so again, I think we've got to understand collectively of a team, what do we mean by harmony? What's the upside of that? What's the downside of that? But I kind of come back to this metaphor of a, an orchestra playing in harmony. They might be classed as a high-performing team. But maybe not. If somebody's seething, sitting there really annoyed with their colleague next door um, because something else happened beforehand, they could still be playing their part and it sounds harmonious, but actually maybe when they walk out of the auditorium it's not yeah i mean harmony from a music perspective is how the notes all connect with each other right to create the overall outcome but from harmonious people it's different so harmony of music is different to harmony of people and so and when it comes to a high performing team if we're looking at harmony of people then it's to me, as I said, it's very rarely in the top areas of it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just, I'm just interested in it because, like, for me, you really want to celebrate the diversity and how do you bring that together from a united perspective in knowing what your roles are and what your place is in the team and how that's going to contribute to the overall success. But does harmony actually, you know, if we keep focusing on harmony, will that help us? And so, as I said, if it's harmony of people, it's a bit different to harmony of notes or harmony of playing your role because that's yeah. I think that's different. 
Yeah, but I, I guess the linkage I would bring in there is that people are involved in playing that note the same way as people are involved in an outcome, in a, in a deliverable. Mm. But again, it comes back to what's our goal? What's our common mission, purpose? How are we all going about achieving that? And, you know, I, I like the five five truths of strong teams. And one of those strong teams is, you know, conflict doesn't tear a, a strong team apart because strong teams focus on the results. So, um, yeah. you know, it is that diversity of thought, feeling, and action that, that helps achieve that. But, you know, what is it that we're trying to achieve? Yeah, my experiences with conflict is that it's dealt with quickly and openly. And because high-performing teams realize that they, they can't spend much time on it because it'll affect the outcome. Yeah. And, and so conflict is, is normally very common in high-performing teams, and a lot of it um, to because that's where the diversity comes in, but it's it's the conflict when people don't talk about it. That's when we get into trouble. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, harmony is a Clifton. Yeah, harmony is a Clifton strength thing. I, I kind of just wrote a blog post on this. I see as sometimes one of the most underutilized superpowers, underutilized strengths within a team because a lot of people go, oh yeah, no, I don't like conflict. I'm just going to stick my head in the sand. But the beauty of Clifton's strengths harmony theme is they can see both sides they can find a starting point yes let's deal with it you know command and harmony both see conflict as a waste of time and energy might approach it in a different way and when people really step into their harmony talent theme it's it's kind of finding a starting point to have the discussion from you know finding a common ground to be able to say see what you're saying see what you're saying what do we want to do about that whereas yeah a lot of other people will either let it fester or there might be passive aggressiveness or walk out of a meeting and say yes, yes, yes to the person's face, walk out and do and say something different. But I totally agree. It's better It's better sort of uh, dealt with and thinking about how can we focus on what we need to achieve. Yeah, 100%. So looking at your book, your you know, career unstuck, um, where did this come from? Like what was the, the reason and the catalyst behind you wanting to create this uh, book and present that to the world as a gift from you. I would talk during my sort of journeys, my coaching, and I would often ask the question on a scale of one to 10, how much do you love your job? Now, love is a very strong word for some people, and you can replace the word love by whatever word, you know, suits you. And I was sh shocked at how low that number often was, you know, where people would say a three, a three out of 10 is how much I like or enjoy my job. You were sharing her earlier how much you know you've always sort of enjoyed your your job and felt engaged, and that's not the same for other people. So then we would have these conversations about what would help them get unstuck, and either through coaching or sometimes it would be mentoring. And I I would find myself over and over again sharing some of the resources that helped me when I felt stuck in my career, and sort of find myself typing the same message. There was also some something in there about people would say to me, well, Charlotte, how do you get to where you are now? You know, you left school, you didn't go to university, you, know, you sort of worked your way up through different organizations, you know, up or across, and, and now you're doing something that you absolutely love and, and you're rocking it and you're killing it. How did you get there? So I'd often tell that story and people would say, gosh, you should write a book about that. So there were a couple of things that sort of, you know, came into play wanted to fundamentally inspire and lead and help other people just take one step forward to moving away from feeling like there is no other option 
I'm feeling like they're stuck to you know, kind of getting getting up stuck and loving what they're doing again or you know just discovering what it is that they're passionate about finding out what their strengths are trying to reimagine understanding number one what's keeping you stuck and then number two reimagine what work and life could look like and then how are you going to get a, 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 a tribe a, a cheer squad some mentors on the journey with you to to support you so it was a, a number of reasons it took a few years to kind of come out I would share that for four years running, it was on my list of things to do, you know, write a book. I normally write my goals at the beginning of the year, write the book, was there, and it never happened. And then with my coach, I sat down and went, I'm really frustrated. I haven't got this done. It's been there four years. So we unpacked it, and I realized that I actually didn't know how to write a book. And I probably had some limiting beliefs being dyslexic that, oh, I can't write a book. I'm, you know, dyslexic. Um, and then I spoke to well-known author, Donna McGeorge. Um, I'd like to call her a friend as well. I've, I've done a course with her and met her and she used to live up the road. Good. And I reached out and said, hey, Donna, you've written a couple of books. How'd you go about doing it? And she's like, oh, you need Kelly Irving. You know, she's she's amazing, the expert author community. And that that's kind of, I had a conversation with her and the moment I had a conversation with her, I was like, yeah, okay, I want to do this now. How quickly can I get this this book done? So. It went from, I don't know how to do this, to I'm really excited to get it done. And I'm glad I have and, and start thinking about book two. Okay. So you've talked about, uh, it's great. I, I love it. And book two, I'm excited about seeing what comes of that one. What You talked about limiting beliefs here. Um, for those who don't understand, what is a limiting belief? And then how do we approach a limiting belief to unlock or unstuck our career or our our pathway that we're on. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, a limiting belief is something that is stopping you. So for me, it might have been, I'm dyslexic, I can't write a book. That's a limiting belief versus an enabling belief would be, I could learn how to write a book. I could have a support mechanism. That's what editors are there to do, to check your spelling. Um, so that's more of an enabling um, belief. So sometimes it's initially identifying that you know, it's your own belief system, it's your own mindset that is getting in the way. And if you were to literally sort of take that thing that's stopping you and shifting the language, like you were sharing earlier a little bit about, you know, context and futuristic, it's not quite this, the, the, the same, but there's, you know, kind of one is thinking back of the past and the other one is thinking of the future. Oh, you know, I spoke up in this meeting one time and I got shut down. There's no point in me speaking up again. That might be a limiting belief. An enabling belief might be, um, I think I have something valuable to contribute. I'll try again in a different way and, you know, my, my voice will be heard. I do have something to offer. So it's just looking at what it is now, what it could be, reframing that. Um, and then going right. Well, if I was to test doing that, you know, what would what would that look like? I mean, we all have limiting beliefs, and some of it comes from our upbringing, and some of it comes from our you know experiences. But I, I kind of wrote in the book. You know, it's like children are, are very they they don't seem to have many limiting beliefs. They're forever curious and testing things out. You imagine as as a little child, as as your child walking now. <laughs> trying to run at a million miles an hour yeah so you know it's like if we were if we could be a little bit more childlike you imagine what would happen to humanity if every time a child fell over and they go oh okay, this is too hard work i'm not going to bother trying to walk anymore 
But it's as we grow up, we seem to go, oh, well, I tried that once and it hurt and I'm not going to do it again. If we could be a little bit more childlike and, you know, fall over and stand back up again, fall over, stand back up again. You know, and have people there supporting you, holding your hand, you know, encouraging you along. So I do encourage people if they think that they've got some limiting beliefs to have a conversation with somebody else about it, you know, and see how they can unpack it to be an enabling belief. What might happen if they thought about it in a different way? Why do you think people, uh, um, like they may acknowledge something's happening, they may see an opportunity, but they can't change. And, and they stay stuck in their job or they continue to do what they've always done because they need to keep paying the bills. Why do people find it so challenging to change? Well, it, it in part, possibly, again, coming back to their mindset that they can't see what could be possible. And maybe they don't have the support system and the mechanism around them. Maybe they want to change, but... And their partners have said, well, well, no, we we just need to kind of pay the bills. And maybe there's some courageous conversations that need to be happening there. Maybe they need to su seek the support of somebody else and they're trying to kind of navigate some of those things um, on their own. But I often think about, well, what's the impact if you don't change? You know, the people that are stuck in their role, what's the weather that they're carrying around with them if they're, you know, depressed or unhappy or sad or just not energized, are they taking that home? And is that, you know, um, being shared with their partner, their children, their friends? You know, there's a, there's a massive impact of feeling stuck where we are. Depends on whether you feel stuck or not. But, you know, if we feel stuck where we are, what's the impact of that having on you, your health, your family, your well-being? You know, maybe you're stuck somewhere and you know, you've got a terrible boss and you just feel like you've got no options and your motivation and your self-esteem has been you know, plummeted through the floor. I encourage those people to reach out to somebody and have a conversation and start helping build up their, their own self-esteem again. But to me, it's just like little tiny steps of action. You feel stuck, just, just take one little step forward and see what happens. But you know, sometimes people want to stay stuck. We can't make everybody move. Yeah. I remember sort of, you know, when I was first writing the book and ha having it proofread and kind of Kelly was like, Charlotte, not everybody's going to want to start their own business. You can't force people to start their own business. That's why it might be book two. Um, you know, that's, that's not going to be for everybody. And you've got to understand what it is that's keeping that person stuck. And there's lots of different reasons. It's more than just kind of one reason, but Sometimes people don't necessarily evaluate that. Okay. Um, if you don't mind, go back to the book, uh, four years, put it down, New Year's resolution, going to write the book. Each <laughs> year, same thing. Then you have this coaching conversation. Are you willing to unpack how you became unstuck? Y yes, you had someone, you know, sort of, um, coach you through that but I want how did you then approach it from let's say your top five strengths how did you use your top five strengths um, or potentially out to your your 12 dominant themes what did you use there to help you get unstuck to really get moving and writing that book 
Well, I absolutely used my woo to reach out to a couple of people. So, you know, Donna, to have a conversation, Donna, you've written a book. How did you go about doing it? And then she connected me with with, with Kelly. So then the activator came into play. I reached out to a couple of other people. One of my options was to have a ghostwriter write the book for me. So I reached out to that person. So there's absolutely some kind of woo in there. I think another thing is once I decided I was going to write the book, um, I had to publicly uh, declare that on LinkedIn to say I'm writing a book and then my responsibility was bound. I had told publicly people that I was writing a book so my responsibility was was bound to do what I said I was going to do. My positivity was then incredibly excited of, you know, and then my activator was also impatient of going, okay, now I've decided I am going to write the book and I, I, I've got a structure and a process and I know how to do this. I want it done within a couple of months and I had to kind of rein myself in a little bit that I couldn't just kind of rush forward on that. I think there was absolutely a bit of the arranger because I'm trying to juggle my my daily job and I'm writing a book. Um, so I'd have to sort of juggle a few things. Um, sometimes it was a case of me outsourcing other work to other people of saying, right, no, I'm committed to writing this book. I need to de dedicate this time. I could keep taking new work, but no, I would outsource some work to other people using my maximizer again to say, you know, hey, Penny, can you deliver this workshop for me? I need to kind of like focus focus on that. So there was a bit of that aspect. I think there's an element of self-assurance as well that once I knew the process, I'm like, yeah, okay, Charlotte, you've got this. Um, you know, let's let's work through um, towards doing that. So I think there's a number of different talent themes that came into play. I think we always have our, our doubts, you know, sometimes like, oh my God, who's going to read this? I'm not the CEO of some organization. I didn't go to university. I don't have this list of qualifications behind me. I would have my own doubting beliefs sometimes, but then I would send it out to test readers, ask for candid, honest feedback, and they'd be like, I love this. This is a really, you know, useful, easy to read. We can hear your voice, hear your humor in it. I would tell some embarrassing stories in there as well. I would get research from other people. I would tell their stories. Um, and people go, this is a really practical book. And that would kind of spur me on and go, yeah, actually, I do have a, you know, a voice to be able to share. I've got to focus on who's my ideal reader. Um, so I guess my sort of significance paid a little bit apart in that of going, okay, let's narrow this down to who is it that I'm ultimately trying to reach. This book is not for everybody. If you're not stuck in your career and you love your job, this book is not for you. But if you ask that question on a scale of one to ten, how much do you love your work? And the answer is lower than you would like it to be. And there's no right answer to that. It doesn't have to be a 10. But if it's lower than you would like it to be, then there's some little action that you need to take. So I think all my talents and strengths played a role. But the thing that was getting in the way is I didn't actually understand how to write a book. Yeah. And that was the most useful part. But I'd say my, my woo started that journey, I'd say, after Beautiful. the coach. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's a great way for people to kind of understand how strengths can play out in a certain situation. And you know, when we're talking about career unstuck, you were, I suppose, as a as, as an entrepreneur in a way or a solopreneur running your own thought leadership business that and coaching business that you, how did you get unstuck from something you wanted to achieve that was um, you know, you are, you're holding yourself back from it and how can you then apply those strengths and have bring someone else and who gets to coach you 
and you be the student in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my, my coach helped me get to this point of how do I write it? And then you know, Kelly is a book writing coach. She was the person and then the community around me that sort of helped get there. I think the other one I didn't mention was communication, um, which seems to be a sort of bit of a, an autopilot. You know, I got my own style of communication and I think that absolutely came into the book as well with some of those those stories. So yeah, they all, they all played a part. Beautiful, beautiful. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Well, I think writing the book was something that I probably did for the first time. Um, trying new food is also something uh, we believe in our house. I always used to say to the children, you, you have to at least try it. So I'm always willing to sort of try new food and I pretty much eat anything. That probably sounds like a kind of um, a trivial thing. Uh, since I had my riding accident, I've been trying to be a uh, better gardener. So I've been try tr trial and error for sure, trying different things in the garden and, and seeing what happens. So I feel like quite often I do things for the first time, try something new. I think, again, that's how I learn best. The activator of jumps in, tries something and sees what happens. If it doesn't work, positivity goes, oh, well, never mind. Maximizer kicks in and says, how could I do that better? But I'd say the biggest thing was probably writing the book, trying that for the first time. Now I'm excited by doing it again. Beautiful. I think gardening is one of the greatest teachers of nurturing. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I, I feel very accomplished. Um, I have to grow zucchinis or courgettes for your um, international listeners, depending on where in the world, because they make me feel like an accomplished gardener because it doesn't matter what I do, I can always grow too many courgettes. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that makes me feel good. Other, other crops and things fail regularly. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Why do we have such a fixation on fixing weaknesses? is one that I would love to solve. A lot of people say, yes, yes, I get strengths, but what about my weaknesses? We, we have this fixation of, you know, being well-rounded and I, I would love to solve that of, why do we have such a fixation on fixing things or doing things that we don't do very well versus celebrating what we do do well? There's enough research out there that says we're gonna get better outcomes focusing on the things that we do well and navigating the others, but I would love to solve that. Love it. For you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you? When I was at Mercer, my manager, leader, then Kathy Tompkins, I found her an incredibly inspiring leader. She um, would just see you for who you are and would ask great questions, would coach you, would um, really get to understand you as a human, would find out how often you wanted to check in, for instance. So it would be a regular ongoing conversation. And I found that incredibly inspiring that they weren't trying to make me be somebody I'm not, but helping me achieve my goals in a way that's meaningful to me in a way that enables me to, you know, use my strengths. So she's been absolutely one of the most inspiring leaders I've ever worked for. And, you know, and we're, we're still in touch now and, and friends, which I think is great. I mean, I've been very fortunate to have a number of 
inspiring leaders over the years. As say Peter Spitter, who turned 82 yesterday. You know, he was one of my first inspiring leaders, and I've had many terrible leaders and many very inspiring leaders. But you know, the ones that inspire me the most are those that enable me to be me and understand that I think, feel, and behave differently, and also hold the mirror up to me when I'm you know, need a bit of reflection or understanding when I maybe haven't done something quite as well or haven't handled something as well. I think that's what's inspiring one that's willing to challenge you as well. Charlotte, this has been a great conversation. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way to connect with you? I love connecting on LinkedIn. So the best way to connect with me is to connect with me on on LinkedIn. I'm a very open LinkedIn connector unless you're immediately trying to sell me something i hate it when people connect with me and then immediately i get a message and they're trying to sell me something so please don't do that um and then the other place to find me find information about the book would be the strengthspartners.com or you could just have a look at careerunstuck.com.au but the primary work that i do is the strengthspartners.com but i love connecting on linkedin mm. Beautiful. Well, we'll pop those links in the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I loved hearing about your early years when you grew up on the farm and, and your approach, your activation in life and wanting to get going and uh, having those great experiences in hospitality before finding yourself in a role of sales based on someone else's observations of what they naturally saw you were really, really good at to then find along the way what really energized you and being able to uh, tap into your talents and, and really nurture them into strength so that you can you know, make a positive difference in this world uh, through your significance, uh, strength that you have and the way you approach things. I, I love your, you just have real nice calm controlledness of you even though you've got a high activation and command, your ability to hold space is quite remarkable and so thank you for creating the book unstuck uh, career unstuck i'm sure it will help a lot of people that are navigating a world where they find themselves in a situation where they may not be totally happy with but they're not sure how to g get themselves out of where they are and so i'm sure you can help a lot of people through that um, so it's wonderful to have a, a really deep meaningful conversation with you today and really appreciate your time I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been really interesting having that conversation with you and bouncing around some different ideas and thought processes. So I've, I've learned a lot myself and it's been really inspiring talking to you. So thank you. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong. <laughs>